0: Staple prices provide a sense of security. They help define a reliable social and political order. They are like safe streets, clean drinking water, and dependable electricity. Their importance is only noticed when they go missing. This is an excerpt from The Great Inflation and Its Aftermath, The Past and Future of American Affluence by Robert Samuelson. So I'm doing something a little different here. I read this book a couple of years ago, and it's a terrific history of inflation during the 60s and 70s, and I was actually working on an episode about the bankruptcy of General Motors, and I thought this inflation background might be helpful, and before I knew it, this had just ballooned into its own episode, and so it's different than what I had set out to do, but I thought it was just useful, and I just decided to run with it. The core premise of this book is that the last several decades of economic activity is a direct result of the inflation period of the 60s and 70s. But I think an even more accurate assessment is just to say that this is a book all about monetary policy. Inflation was a result of monetary policy in the same way that the housing crisis of 2008-2009 was a result of monetary policy. The government pushed for everyone to own a house. During this period of rising inflation, companies, including General Motors, experienced a surge in sales and profits, leading managers to believe they were excelling. Between 1964 and 1974, after-tax profits nearly doubled. However, when things were examined more closely, it turned out much of this growth was merely inflation. When companies began to share inflation-adjusted financial reports in the late 1970s, the truth became clear. For example, General Motors announced a 70 cent, 77% increase in sales and a 46% rise in profits over five years. When adjusted for inflation, the sales growth wasn't 77%, it was 20%, and the 46% profit increase vanished. This situation wasn't unique to GM. Throughout the business world in the 1970s, raw profits seemed to grow, but real profit margins actually decreased from a baseline of 17% in the 1950s to 11% in the 1970s. So taking a step back, before the Great Depression, money in the U.S. was a mix of gold, silver, paper currencies, and bank deposits. Paper money was often backed by gold and sometimes silver, which served as a check against excessive currency printing and inflation. To offer a safety net and accommodate regular seasonal demands, Congress created the Federal Reserve in 1913 following the panic of 1907. This was when J.P. Morgan famously rescued the market because the Fed didn't exist yet. There's a great book about some market crashes, and this is covered in it. The book is A History of the United States in Five Crashes by Scott Nations. It's it's a wonderful book. I can't recommend it enough, but that specifically covers the 1907 crash if you're interested in reading more about that. Anyway, the Fed can regulate money and credit in one of two ways. It can set the price of money, which is interest rates, or it can control the quantity of money, which is the money supply. When the Fed wants to Add to bank reserves, it buys U.S. treasuries. The payments for these securities are deposited in banks and increase the bank reserves. The greater a bank's reserves, the more it can lend. Selling treasury securities does the opposite. It takes money from the banks in exchange for treasuries, and it decreases the amount it can lend. From its peak in September 1929 to its low point in July 1932, the Dow Jones fell some 89%. Unemployment reached a peak of almost 25% during this time. The economy drastically contracted, numerous banks failed, leading to reduced loans and a further drop in economic activity. No single bank can handle a full-blown panic. None of them has enough liquid assets to pay all depositors simultaneously. In order to halt a panic, a bank has to quickly assure depositors of its stability. The Fed could have intervened during the Great Depression by infusing more money and credit, but it held back due to the gold standard's constraints and the real bills doctrine, which which suggested the Fed should only support productive short-term business loans. But during the Depression, loan demand was minimal, and the result was an overly cautious Fed when action was desperately needed. During the Great Depression, not only was inflation low, but the U.S. actually experienced deflation. Deflation means the currency has greater purchasing power. This can exacerbate economic downturns by increasing the real value of debt, however. For example, the value of Bitcoin within its economy has been deflationary. You can buy more with fewer Bitcoin. If you agreed to buy a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoins in 2008, for example, and told someone you'd get it to them later, but forgot, and now they're demanding you pay them 10,000 Bitcoin at $20,000 or whatever per Bitcoin. You can see how that really increases the value of the debt. Deflation can also lead to decreased spending by consumers and businesses who anticipate even lower prices in the future. Why buy something today when it's going to be cheaper tomorrow? From 1929 to 1933, prices fell about 10% per year. This deflation was a significant factor that deepened and prolonged the economic hardships of the Great Depression. As consumers and businesses held off on purchases, demand decreased, which led to lower production, even more layoffs, and an even more sluggish economy. World War II helped to end the Depression by stimulating the economy. It's also a lot easier for people to agree to rationing and wage and price controls when there's a common purpose and a strong sense of patriotism. At the end of the war, the U.S. was the dominant economic power. While much of Europe and Asia were ravaged by the war, the U.S. remained untouched and had greatly expanded its industrial base. The U.S. also had the largest gold reserves in the world. With the Great Depression still fresh in people's minds, Fears of another economic collapse were widespread. In 1946, 60% of Americans thought a depression might occur within the decade. That same year, the government established the Council of Economic Advisers, or CEA, through the Employment Act of 1946. The CEA was created to offer unbiased economic guidance to the president, in 1947, President Truman proclaimed, quote, the job today is to see to it that America is not ravaged by recurring depressions and long periods of unemployment, unquote. Eisenhower thought the government had to act if the economy was at risk of a deep recession or depression. We would need to run deficits and cut interest rates. In the 1950s, the growth in money supply matched the growth in the economy. In the 1960s and 70s, the growth in the money supply outpaced the growth in the economy, leading to rising inflation. From 1960 to 1979, annual U.S. inflation increased from a negligible 1.4% to a crushing 13.3%. By 2001, inflation had receded to 1.6%, almost exactly what it had been in 1960. It was impossible for people to predict what their expenses would be with this rampant inflation. So how did this happen? Inflation is typically blamed on events like Vietnam or oil shortages. Without getting into the politics too much, is reminiscent of Putin price hikes. But this really goes back to the Council of economic advisors. Advancements in computers had allowed for modeling of multiple economic variables in ways that previously could not be done. From these models, economists calculated how far the economy had strayed from its, from its potential. It was believed that with more information, economists could predict recessions and inflation and then implement corrective measures. Booms and busts, recessions and depressions, these had been considered unavoidable aspects of capitalism. Traditionally, business cycles were thought to be self-correcting through adjustments in wages, prices, and interest rates. The 1930s defied this belief, however. John Maynard Keynes argued that wages could be sticky and might resist decreasing in a downturn, and businesses could remain cautious even with low interest rates. It was believed that without government intervention, the economy might remain stagnant and unemployment would would remain high. Quote, The Kennedy-Johnson economists were not plagued by self-doubt. They saw themselves as missionaries for the collective benefits available from modern economics. A new era was at hand if only political and public resistance could be swept away, Remember, this is the time of the space race. The power of the atom had been unleashed. The future is bright. Why can't we bend the economy to our will? Economists believed the government could perpetually maintain the economy near full employment. If unemployment rose, the government could stimulate the economy by cutting taxes, increasing spending, running a deficit, and lowering interest rates. If needed, these actions could be reversed to curb inflation and slow the economy. The first obstacle to full control over the economy was the need for balanced budgets. At this time, Americans viewed debt negatively. If they didn't live beyond their means, then why should the government? The public also liked price stability, but policymakers thought it was better to have some low-level inflation in order to optimize employment, even if it meant compromising price stability. The final obstacle was the gold standard. The 1944 Bretton Woods Conference established a system where currencies were pegged to the U.S. dollar and the dollar was convertible to gold at $35 an ounce. This conference also led to the creation of the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and the World Bank. If inflation lowered the dollar's value, foreign governments could more cheaply convert their dollars into gold, threatening U.S. gold reserves. Addressing this risk to the gold supply might involve slowing the U.S. economy in order to reduce inflation. Kennedy's economists felt that maintaining domestic employment was more important than controlling inflation, which led to considerations of abandoning the gold guarantee. During this time, the primary concern was unemployment. Again, these are all largely individuals who had lived through the Great Depression. So they had seen high unemployment, but inflation was not something anyone had really experienced. If the government ensured constant strong demand and full employment, companies could always expect good sales, while workers could demand higher wages. If costs, including labor, increased, they could be offset by raising prices. But this leads to a continuous wage-price cycle, causing persistent and self-perpetuating inflation. A Yale economist who served on Johnson's CEA wrote, Quote, recessions are now considered to be fundamentally preventable, like airplane crashes and unlike hurricanes. Unquote. A consequence of this thinking was that recessions and slumps would not be treated as unfortunate but inevitable occurrences. Political leaders would be blamed because competent governments could control the business cycle. Quote, In 1962, Kennedy's first CEA designated 4% unemployment as a temporary target for full employment. By the U.S. Phillips curve, that implied the country would run a permanent inflation rate of about 3% to 4%. The presumption was that most people would adjust to slightly higher inflation without much resentment or serious economic or social side effects. It was crucially presumed that inflation would be stable and not accelerate, unquote. The Phillips curve describes the relationship between unemployment and inflation. It's an inverse relation with higher inflation coinciding with lower employment and lower inflation coinciding with higher unemployment. There were two main views of inflation, cost push and demand pull. The cost-push view was that inflation was driven by a few key industries with unionized workers who could raise wages, which then got passed along as higher prices. Demand-pull inflation was thought to result from excessive demand that couldn't meet supply. Think toilet paper during COVID. In a speech in 1974, the economist Milton Friedman stated, quote, inflation is made by the government and no one else. Of course, No government likes to accept responsibility for its own defects. So governments, of course, blame greedy businessmen, grasping trade unionists, and spendthrift consumers. No doubt businessmen are greedy, no doubt trade unionists are are grasping, and everyone knows that housewives are spendthrifts. But neither the greedy businessmen, nor the grasping trade unionists, nor the spendthrift housewives produce inflation. The reason they do not produce inflation is because none of them has access to a printing press on which he can turn out those lovely, or some people think not so lovely, pieces of paper with which you purchase goods and services. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon." America's worst peacetime inflation occurred because the government, through the Fed, created too much money, and too much money chasing too few goods fuels inflation. As a side note, at the beginning of 2020, there was roughly $4 trillion in circulation. By October 2021, that amount had climbed to just over $20 trillion. In 1950, there was roughly $150 billion in circulation. It would not hit $1 trillion until 1977-78. to 78. Milton Friedman argued that if the government tried to hold unemployment below some natural rate, the result would be accelerating inflation. Inflation can initially increase hiring because prices increase before wages increase. As workers demand higher pay, hiring decreases and unemployment returns to its normal state, only now with increased inflation. Inflation. During this time, Lyndon Johnson also embarked on massive social spending, including Medicare, Medicaid, and the War on Poverty. The Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Department of Transportation were also established. On top of this, there was also escalation in Vietnam, with troop numbers increasing from 23,000 in 1964 to 500,000 in 1968. In 1962, the Council of Economic Advisors introduced the idea of wage price guideposts, primarily targeting industries dominated by unions and a few big industries like steel and autos. The concern was that unions could secure large wage hikes, leading these industries to raise prices and cause inflation even when the economy wasn't at full employment. These guideposts aimed to use public opinion and government pressure to encourage these influential business sectors to behave more in line with competitive market principles. The hope was that negative publicity would deter these businesses from inflationary behaviors. By 1964, the target of a 3.2% annual wage increase was set, assuming that productivity growth would offset these costs without affecting profits. President Johnson actively enforced these guideposts using owning. Think President Trump attacking businesses and CEOs on Twitter. Johnson believed he could talk businesses and unions out of inflationary behavior and that the problem would just go away. For example, in the mid-1960s, when aluminum and copper companies tried to raise prices, Johnson released materials from the U.S. strategic stockpiles to counteract price hikes. During the economic boom of the mid-1960s, President's, President Johnson's jawboning proved ineffective against the strong upward pressures on wages and prices. Despite the initial successes, by 1966 wages were rising even faster than before. Wages and prices tended to rise during prosperous times, but didn't decrease significantly during downturns. Even in a recession with increased unemployment, wage growth hardly slowed. This indicated a weakening of traditional market forces. Because the unemployed expected to be hired again quickly, their wage demands didn't change. Companies stuck with surplus inventory had learned that demand was likely to recover, so they didn't need to cut prices to make shelf space. Government intervention was needed to break the spiral. Unfortunately, Presidents Nixon and Carter didn't adapt to past economic mistakes because they viewed economics as a complex subject and relied heavily on advisors. Mainstream economists were slow to change their views and admit they did not have the mastery of the economy they thought they did. Then there was also the politics of things. Democrats and Republicans often took opposing approaches to the same problems. During this time, most presidents considered inflation a secondary issue. When inflation worsened, they addressed it, but often in a a reactive manner. Their primary aim was to ensure inflation didn't hinder other objectives, rather than setting aside other objectives to focus on inflation. When Nixon was elected in 1968, he wanted to exit Vietnam and open trade relations with China. Inflation was not a top priority. Nixon's initial economic policy was dubbed gradualism. The idea was that a slight economic slowdown and the resulting unemployment and spare industrial capacity would gradually reduce wage and price pressures. When Nixon took office, unemployment was 3.4%. It was expected to rise slightly above 4% with the belief that competition would naturally curb inflation without a recession. Nixon's economists anticipated positive outcomes for 1969 and 1970. However, 1970 saw a mild recession with unemployment hitting 6% by December. Inflation only decreased slightly from 6.2% in 1969 to 5.6% in 1970. In August 1970, the Democratic Congress passed legislation allowing the president to impose wage price controls, aiming to embarrass Nixon. No one expected Nixon to use this authority because he had been so vocal in opposing it. On August 15, 1971, to the surprise of everyone, Nixon announced a 90-day wage price freeze. This move was part of a strategy to allow the dollar to depreciate and to end the promise of exchanging gold for dollars held by foreign governments. This goes back to the Bretton Woods Conference. The 90-day freeze was phase one of his plan. After this came phase two. With phase two, the government oversaw wage and price hikes through the wage commission, or excuse me, the price commission and the pay board. By 1973, phase three loosened many of these controls, although some sectors remained regulated. As a result, there were meat scarcities. Cattlemen withheld animals from slaughter. One chicken hatchery drowned 43,000 baby chicks in barrels, which was broadcast on TV for some reason quote, it's cheaper to drown them than to raise them, unquote. Despite these efforts, by 1974, inflation persisted with the controls failing to deliver long-term economic stability. Quote, Nixon abandoned gradualism only after practically every prominent Democrat, most professional economists, a growing number of Republicans, much of the corporate community, his own economists and the public demanded he do so, Imposing controls helped him win re-election, but when they were removed, inflation exploded into double digits. The country would go on to experience a recession from 1973 through 1975. Gerald Ford was the House Minority Leader during Watergate and was promoted to vice president when Spiro Agnew resigned during Watergate. He would then become president when Nixon stepped down during Watergate. President Ford did take inflation seriously and actually had these whip inflation now or win pins, but wasn't in office long enough to have any real impact on it. When Carter was elected in 1976, His focus was on erasing the damage that had been done from the Watergate scandal and restoring economic growth. Inflation was still not a top priority. By the late 1970s, inflation was viewed more as a political and psychological issue than an economic one. Many Americans saw inflation enduring because the government wouldn't address it. The political consequences were too significant. No one wanted to be responsible for increased unemployment and decreased incomes. If inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, the Fed could fight it by supplying less money. Doing this slows the economy and raises unemployment. Quote, by early 1980, inflation was running almost 15% annually. The explanation was not mysterious. Full employment remained the obsession, blaming inflation's worst outbursts on the Vietnam War and oil price explosions One-time events that exonerated normal economic policies resulted in a ruinous complacency, The Fed responded to rising inflation by restricting money and credit, which often led to economic slowdowns or recessions. These measures were temporary and often ineffective and led to brief reductions in inflation before it surged again. The Fed's decisions were influenced by political political considerations. It aimed to meet the expectations of political leaders and the public rather than achieve a sustainable economic balance. These new economic policies would have been restricted by the gold standard in earlier times which capped money creation based on gold reserves. However, since the gold standard was believed to have contributed to the depression, it was rejected and discarded. Economies and growth require increased money and credit, which the gold standard restricted due to its fixed and uncertain supply. This restriction prevented unchecked inflation, and removing it meant new methods were needed to control inflation. During the presidencies of Johnson, Nixon, and Carter, both voluntary and mandatory wage and price controls were implemented. These controls had been effective during the World Wars, as patriotism drove compliance, and acceptance of restrictions. In World War II, many consumer goods were rationed, wages were controlled, and unions were not allowed to strike. However, black markets and evasion tactics emerged, such as under-the-table payments for apartments and shrinking product sizes to disguise price hikes. After the war, the removal of certain price controls led to significant price surges. With the lifting of the no-strike pledge Unions initiated strikes in various industries in 1946 to address perceived imbalances. Quote, the trouble with peacetime controls is that they face all the wartime vices without any of the wartime virtues. They are still complicated and cumbersome, but they lack patriotic props. The controls, voluntary and mandatory, of the 1960s and 70s also had a fundamentally different purpose. It was not to reallocate production fairly, it was to maximize production and employment without the bother of inflation. To succeed, these controls required almost inhuman self-restraint. Companies, workers, and unions had to renounce their immediate self-interest in raising prices and wages while tolerating the mistakes, inconsistencies, and absurdities of government regulations and bureaucrats." Here, everyone is being asked to put aside their own self-interest, but without any obvious greater good. Moreover, if prices alone determine who gets what, the heaviest burden falls on the poor because they can least afford higher prices. In the late 1970s, facing mounting inflation, Carter's administration issued a set of voluntary wage and price standards. The intent was to encourage businesses and unions to limit their wage and price increases aiming to keep them in line with with specified targets, usually based on productivity gains and prior inflation. However, since these guidelines were voluntary, their effectiveness depended on broad compliance from both labor and business. Over time, the program met with limited success and struggled to contain inflationary pressures. Wage and price increases were the consequences of lax money and credit policies. Companies and workers were merely defending themselves against, and in some cases, exploiting an inflation that was not of their own making. In 1981, interest rates on 30-year treasury bonds averaged about 13.5%. On 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, they were 15%. President Nixon stated, quote, When you start talking about inflation in the abstract, it is hard for people to understand, but when unemployment goes up one-half of one percent, that's dynamite, unquote. Looking back on the Carter presidency, the White House's chief domestic advisor later stated, quote, The principal fault of the economic policy of the Carter years was a failure to identify the ferocity of the underlying inflationary pressures of the economy. We stuck too long to the stimulative fiscal and monetary policies promised in the 1976 presidential campaign to end what we called the Ford Recession. In retrospect, we were blind until it was too late to the rising level of inflation. The president's top aides, myself included, and the Democratic Party in general, feared and tended to to oppose any economic decision which risked restraining growth and causing higher unemployment to fight inflation." This next section is a long quote, but bear with me. Broadly speaking, there are two theories of history. One is the Great Forces Theory, which holds that changes in science, technology, population, and ideas, from religion to politics, are the prime movers. Most people Kings, generals, bankers, presidents, and intellectuals are simply swept along by these strong tides. The other is the great leader theory. Leaders take charge. They bend events to their will, for good or ill. Both theories are, of course, correct, but neither is entirely correct. People are mostly hostage to larger forces that they do not fully understand or control. Most political leaders, business executives, and intellectuals follow the strongest current, pretending that they are charting their own course. But there are moments when history submits to powerful leaders, a Washington, Madison, Napoleon, Lenin, or Hitler. They alter history. The subjugation of inflation was, on a smaller scale, one of those moments. It was principally the accomplishment of two men Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan, if either had been absent, the story would have unfolded differently, and from our perspective, less favorably. High inflation would have remained longer, with greater adverse consequences. Reagan and Volcker, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board from 1979 to 1987, forged an accidental alliance that was largely unspoken, impersonal, and misunderstood, between the two men there was no particular personal chemistry nor was there any explicit bargain you do this and I'll do that Even while the alliance flourished it sometimes seemed a mirage although Reagan supported Volcker many officials in his administ- in his administration openly criticized him but the alliance was genuine a compact of conviction both men believed mostly as a matter of faith, that high inflation was shredding the fabric of the economy and of American society. The country could not thrive if it persisted. Buttressed by these beliefs, they broke with the past. Each had a role to play, and each played it somewhat independently of the other." In the late 1970s, the economy was stagnant, but inflation was soaring, giving way to stagflation, As pressure mounted, Carter reshoveled his economic team. William Miller, then chairman of the Federal Reserve, was moved to the Treasury Department, which created a vacancy at the Fed. Filling the position proved more challenging than anticipated. While the job was prestigious, the incoming chairman was going to be the target of intense scrutiny. It was a lose-lose situation. People were going to hate them if they didn't fix things, but if they did take the aggressive actions needed to correct the economy, people were still going to hate them. Paul Volcker, then president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, emerged as a front-runner. Volcker was known for his deep understanding of monetary policy and unwavering resolve. Some economists at the time believed that simply implementing an anti-inflationary plan would naturally reduce inflation. They thought businesses and workers would recognize the harm of high high prices and wage hikes and change what they were doing. Volcker, however, believed that lasting impact could only come through economic hardship. Carter was still very much sensitive to the politics of Volcker's decisions since he was up for re-election in 1980. In March of 1980, Carter introduced a new economic plan focused on spending cuts and controls on bank lending, including credit card debt. While Volcker was not in favor of these controls, he reluctantly went along with them. Carter publicly discouraged excessive consumer borrowing, leading many people to reduce or even abandon their credit cards. This resulted in a sharp decline in consumer spending and a significant increase in unemployment within a few months. Over just a few months, Visa alone would lose some 500,000 accounts. Ronald Reagan would win landslide victories in 1980 and then again in 1984. He lost only one state in 1984, which is unfathomable today. It's a foregone conclusion that states like California and New York are going to be blue states and Texas is a red state, etc. Reagan's initial economic program promised to reduce the money supply in order to curb inflation. He was the first president to make that part of his agenda, and he never backed away from it. He was also the first president who understood that controlling inflation by regulation was not going to work. To combat rampant inflation, Volcker, with Reagan's support, aggressively raised interest rates and restricted credit. Interest rates hit record highs in 1980, which restricted both consumer and business borrowing. Many industries faced sharp declines, with the auto and steel industries being hit especially hard. Business failures and unemployment soared. The unemployment rate hit a post-World War II record of 10.8% by the end of 1982. These draconian measures led to the harshest economic downturn since the 1930s. In response to these challenging conditions, businesses laid off workers, reduced wages, and looked for cheaper supplies. Workers realized that they could no longer expect high annual wage increases. Quote, Companies had to see that they could no longer raise prices as before, because if they did, they might sacrifice sales or go bankrupt. Workers had to understand that high and rising wage increases were no longer automatically in the cards. Unquote. Reagan's approval ratings declined sharply from a high of 68% in May of 1981 to just 35% in January 1983. Reagan was acutely aware of the profound psychological impact of the constant negative media coverage on economic sentiment. The evening news often highlighted job losses and economic hardships. There were endless human interest stories about small businesses going under, or individuals who lost their jobs. At lower levels of, an un- of unemployment than what Reagan was enduring, Nixon and Carter had both lobbied the Fed for pro-job policies. As the economy worsened, Reagan refrained from publicly criticizing Volcker. Instead, he voiced support for him, emphasizing the importance of fighting inflation and expressed confidence in the Federal Reserve's policies. This did not prevent others in government from attacking the Fed. The Senate Majority Leader told the Fed to, quote, get its boot off the neck of the economy, unquote. There were calls to impeach Volcker and draft legislation forcing the Fed to reduce interest rates. Reagan's firm support allowed Volcker to continue his strict anti-inflationary measures despite their unpopularity. Quote, what Reagan and Volcker shared was a reflexive loathing of inflation and an absolute faith that the country needed their policies. You have to start with the, with the conviction that price stability is better than inflation and that better means better for economic growth and stability in the long run and better for everybody, Volcker once said. He dismissed academic economists' elaborate arguments that a little bit of inflation might be good. Volcker proposed a shift in the Fed's approach from targeting interest rates to focusing on the basic money supply, specifically M1, which represents cash and checking accounts. Instead of trying to to determine the correct interest rate, the Fed would regulate the amount of bank reserves, thereby influencing the total money supply. This approach aimed to control inflation by limiting the amount of money in circulation. Throughout the 1970s, the Fed tried to manage the money supply by adjusting interest rates, but this method was ineffective. Volcker believed this was due in large part to human nature, namely the reluctance to make unpopular decisions like raising interest rates. The challenge was determining a rate that promoted growth without causing inflation. As inflation increased, what was once considered a high rate might effectively be low when adjusted for inflation. Volcker felt the Fed was constantly behind in its adjustments, leading to periods with low or even negative real rates when accounting for inflation. Remember, his goal here is to reduce the money supply, so he's trying to get people to put their money into savings accounts, treasury bonds, CDs, places where it's not going to be spent. But if the interest rate is 5% and inflation is 10%, then the real rate is negative 5%. So there's no motivation for people to put their money into those instruments under that situation. What might seem like a really high rate, say 15%, is really just 5% if you have 10% inflation, 15 minus, minus 10. So you may need something like 20% rates if you have 10% inflation to have 10% interest on those accounts. And that would get people to actually move their money into something like savings accounts, CDs, etc. As the recession grew more severe, Americans piled up cash there's a rush to liquidity. Home builders sent the Fed two by fours to represent unho- unsold homes. Car dealers sent the Fed keys to unsold cars. But if the Fed yielded too early, then all this pain would be for nothing. Quote, because interest rates incorporate inflationary expectations, the failure to dispatch inflationary psychology. Could result in a pyrrhic victory. Once inflation revived, rates would rise. Unquote. So, if you don't fully defeat this thing, you're starting the process over, except you're starting from a much higher interest base. Think of this almost as an infection. This is why they tell you to take the full course of antibiotics for seven or ten days or however long. You don't want to just take the drug for a couple of days, introduce some antibiotic resistance and then make the infection stronger. Next thing you know, you're even sicker, and now you need something like an IV antibiotic. Historically, economic downturns only temporarily reduced inflation. It would surge back once the economy improved. However, under this approach, the cycle of temporary relief followed by a resurgence of inflation was broken, marking a significant departure from past patterns the Fed had applied significant economic pressure leading to concerns about the banking sector and unemployment. The number of business failures in 1982 was nearly 50% higher than any other year since World War II. It was almost 25,000. And it would double to over 50,000 by 1984. From 1979 to 1983, farm income declined almost 50%. Declining inflation, or disinflation, was equally powerful. It led to lower interest rates, which led to higher stock prices, and later higher home prices. It has helped to promote the past 30-plus years of growth. With stock and home values rising, Americans felt wealthier and spent more Savings declined. Ultimately, this culminated in speculation and excess. Home loans were extended to unqualified buyers. The presumption was that home values would always be worth more tomorrow than today. And this provided a false sense of security to lenders and culminated in the subprime crisis of 2008 to 2009, which, of course, is a story unto itself. The book gets into some of this and talks about what the future may hold. And it's it's a wonderful book. There's so much that I had taken notes on and started to write stuff about, and I had to condense it down to make it a coherent sort of story. But if you have any interest about this subject or just this time period, I think it's just a fantastic book and a way of looking at the 60s and 70s through this lens of inflation So again, The Great Inflation and Its Aftermath by Robert Samuelson. I just thought it would be an interesting way of looking at the General Motors uh, bankruptcy and everything with the unions. Thanks so much for listening. Mm